The opinions and views expressed in this video are purely for entertainment purposes and not for investment advice. Good morning, YouTube, and welcome to another episode of the Jacked of All Trades podcast. This is episode 32. I'm Brandon, and I'm here with Kalen. Kalen, how you doing? Not too bad. How about yourself? Pretty good. Bright and early on a Sunday morning. Unfortunately, David has a day off. But anyways, let's check out some charts. Let's start off with the S&P 500. So all American indices did close higher to end the week. We're still stuck in a little bit of a summer consolidation, uh, but there's definitely a lot to be bullish about. Um, the S&P 500 has now recorded 49 record closing highs this year, which is nothing short of incredible. I can't remember the last time we did that. It's a little bit of an obscure statistic, but it really just shows how bullish the market has been. Every dip has been bought. If you look at that blue line over there, that should be the 50-day moving average. And every time we even get close to that 50, um, people just start buying the market. Uh, with that said, Kalen, uh, I've noticed on the S&P there's a bit of a rising wedge. Bit. it's uh hold on i got this do you look at log format or do you look at uh just regular oh uh, you could look at both log or normal uh but if you just punch it on just like the like the regular form uh and you connect yeah, you so go on a weekly chart and just kind of squish that out a little bit together and uh if you take all of the highs and you draw a line like a diagonal trend line on the highs and a diagonal trend line yeah. on the lows you're forming this perfect rising wedge, which is actually a bearish reversal pattern. Right. And it's interesting because this really is textbook given uh, like the narrowing price action. Yeah, so you can just draw that a little lower. And then um, like I, I, I would probably go from that gap down in March, but you know, you get okay. it here. So it's just interesting because the price has really been narrowing. It's becoming less and less volatile. And you can say that's because of summertime or whatever, but this is definitely, um, you know, signaling some sort of weakness in the charts. And it would make a lot of sense. August and September is historically the weakest stretch for the markets. You can expect on average, the markets to be down about 2%. I'm not sure if that is gonna be a little bit more based on how stretched we are above the moving averages considering markets are up like 15%, 15 to 20% this year. Uh, but definitely a little bit stretched above that 50 week and that 200 week for sure. Mm -hmm. How much weight do you put on the, like just for you're looking at indexes and stuff like that, like how much weight do you put on the chart pattern versus like the economy? Like when you're doing your own analysis? Well, I always say that um, the stock is the number one prognosticator uh, discounter for the economy. So it's definitely showing better times ahead for the economy. Um, I wouldn't mm -hmm. put too much weight into the charts. It really depends. If you're a long-term holder of these names, I definitely think that you want to buy um, equities or an index closer to its moving averages. But in the long run, it really doesn't matter. You could be buying dollar cost yeah. averaging every single year, the S&P, and it really doesn't matter if you're buying it at the highest day of the year, the lowest day of the year, you're... Uh, return after several decades is going to be the same so it really depends but yeah i was reading a book and uh it was it was just talking about how like they did a bunch of studies and talking about how like let's say you know every year you bought like you bought in x amount of dollars in the s p 
at the all-time highs versus the all-time lows and you did that for you know 50 years or something like that at the end of the day like the the, the amount of money difference is so it's i think it was like three or four percent like it was something really really insignificant so that's what that's what they're basically saying that was the whole premise of the study was that like you know if you're buying like the s p or an index or the nasdaq or whatever to try and wait for a pullback or something like that or don't buy because it's at new highs is is not going to help you at all if anything it could hurt you because you're just going to be waiting and waiting and then by the time you do get a pullback it could be higher than where you would have bought in originally right absolutely i couldn't agree with that more and people have been waiting for a pullback it mm -hmm. feels like you know ever since uh that intermediate cycle low in March of 2020, people thought that that was going to go lower and they thought maybe it was a, you know, a bull trap or, um, you know, like a false breakout, you know, last year. And we just seemingly every week, every month, we're making new highs. And uh, there's a lot of skeptics out there. I think from that study or that book that you read, the bottom line, the most important point was that stay invested because compounding is what makes you money over the long term. So if you're sitting on 100% cash right now and you're waiting for that pullback, there's just no way that that's a wise move. If you have a little bit of cash mm -hmm. on the sidelines and you're waiting for an opportunity in a specific name or an index or there's something that you're watching, I understand that. Uh, seasonally, uh, the odds are probably in your favor that you will get a buying opportunity. But I think this next buying opportunity is a buy on a silver platter. You got to buy it especially given everything that's going on economically, like economic growth has been strong. The recovery in the labor markets is in full swing. Inflation fears have waned. Yields are now at a level that the market is comfortable with, smack between that 1.5 and 1% range. And the earnings have been great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, yeah, it's one of those things, like a lot of my buddies always ask me that too. They're saying, oh, you know, I'm thinking about getting started in the stock market or whatever. Like, you know, should I buy this? Should I buy? Like, is it too high? It's still a good time to buy this. And the first thing I always ask them is like, well, how long are you going to hold this for? And if they say they're going to hold it, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to hold it for a year. Then I'm like, okay, okay well, it's a different story. But if it's, well, I'm just going to buy it and hold it for, you know, retirement, then I'm saying, just buy it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you buy it right now. Like, if, even if we go to a bear market and the market's down for three, four years, if you're planning on buying something for, you know, a 10 years or 20 years, you've already mentally set aside that money that you're not going to touch that. Like if you're, you got say 20 or 30 grand or something like that. And you're saying, okay, like I have this money aside, I'm going to put it in for, you know, a lifelong investment. It doesn't matter. Like you, you just put it in there and forget about it. So that's kind of one of the I biggest things we, we've talked about that a bunch of times. Yeah. Really the minimum time horizon that you really have Sorry. to have is three to five years. Ideally, yeah, you would want to, sure. you know, say let's, 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 Sorry, I was just going to say, what, what, what was the longest bear market? Was it three, three years or something? It was the longest bear market? No, the longest bear market, if you invested in 1929, I believe you didn't make your money back until the 50s. Oh, okay, so about 20 years. So you have to literally have like a 20, like 15 to 20 year time horizon. Now, you, you say the yeah. same thing about the S&P because the S&P topped in 2000 and it didn't make a new high until 2013 to 2015, depending on how you look at it. So like, right, right, right. and these are the periods that I described as secular bear markets. Like I'm sure you saw my quarterly newsletter a few weeks ago where we were talking about how we're in a very powerful secular bull market for equities. So secular bull markets typically right. last multiple decades and it's a period 
of um, you know great economic growth and low inflation and low interest rates um, and new technological advancements and whatnot. Uh, and we believe that we are in this period right now, and we're probably in the middle innings of uh, a secular bull market compared to like the 30s or the 70s or the 2000s, which was a secular bear. So with that premise, I truly believe that if you have a pullback or a correction to 50 week, 200 week, 5% correction, 10% correction, given that we believe we're in a secular bull market, you have to buy it. There's no alternative. You don't want to hold on to cash. You don't want to hold on to bonds because they're yielding so low and they're probably vulnerable if interest rates start to increase. Um, with that said, there are risks. There are short-term risks right now, and we can go through them now because I, I've, I've identified two risks, two key themes that could dominate the second half of the year. And the first one is the coronavirus and the spread of the Delta variant and maybe even new variants, um, but also the economic recovery as the world learns to live with COVID because we can't shut down every single time. The supply, uh, supply constraints and uh, the price increases, we just like, our economy has to learn to live with this. Um, the virus isn't going away anytime soon. So this is definitely a challenge that we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to uh, sort of navigate through. And the second is normalization of monetary policy. Uh, these two key themes are going to be working for and against each other. Like if coronavirus, we go into a, a bad fourth or fifth wave, then the Fed may need to wait a little longer before tapering their balance sheet and the asset purchases um, and risk inflation getting out of hand. So it's definitely a tug of war between the two. So there are risks in the short term. But when I look at the longer term, bigger picture, and I really zoom out, that's when I get even more bullish on the stock market and the economy too. Did you have a chance to read any of that book, The Fourth Turning that David was talking about? I didn't, I was super busy the last few weeks, but he was yeah. explaining the premise of it. And I, I think, did you read it? So I'm about halfway through it now, because he mentioned it. So, so it's a, for everyone that doesn't know, it's this book called The Fourth Turning. And like, I don't want to quote too much of it because I'm not, I'm not too far into it, but basically, it's these guys, they did all the research. The book was released in like the, the 1997, I think it was. And they've essentially like, their, their, their research goes back like four or 500 years. And they've essentially broken humans into these four um, subcategories of, of, of roughly 20 years. And they say basically in some way or another, you know, history repeats itself every 80 to 100 years. And each within that 80 to 100 years, there's these, these 20 year segments because of basically how the population is is born and raised during that time. So just really quickly, if you think about the war times, you know, people that were born during the war are going to be raised and act very differently in society than people that were born 20 years before the war and were in the war in their 20s and 30s, right? So that's why they're kind of saying, you know, the older generation can't look at the younger generation and say, oh, they don't have the same values. Why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? It's because they were raised in a completely different circumstance. But um, without going into too much detail, basically, um, it was really interesting because in the first, you know, uh, like I was listening to an audiobook in the first 20 minutes or so, they were, they were saying, and keep in mind, this book was written in 97, they were saying that somewhere around 2005, we were going to have like some big, uh, I think they call it a spark event, which, you know, this, this book is based on the United States. And then we have the 2008 financial crisis. And they're saying it's basically going to, you know, like a lot of big industries are going to collapse. Banks are going to be struggling. That's going to kind of be like the kicker that kicks off the next, they call it like the cataclysmic event. 
And they said it could be anything from a world war to a world catastrophe to like, you know, a bunch of earthquakes or, you know, pandemics or anything. And they said, based on their predictions, this was going to be, they said a few years before 2025 is when they figured this thing was going to happen. And, you know, here we are in 2021 now, coronavirus, which it, like it just, you know, blew my mind basically that the guys were writing this in the 90s. Um, but essentially, like the premise was based on their history was that coming out of that event is going to be like a massive industry boom. So like industries and businesses are just going to grow like crazy and people are going to become a lot more community oriented and a lot less individualistic. So you're not going to have everybody saying, you know, oh, I'm super special. I'm the best person in the world. It's going to be more of a mentality where everybody's saying, okay, like we can do this, like we can grow together. Our country can thrive. And you just have this like explosion of industry, explosion of technology, explosion of businesses for the next 20 year period. So like just, you know, thinking of that versus Brendan, what you're saying with your analysis, how you're thinking we're in this, you know, 10 year yeah. um, bull market. It's just, it's just really funny to kind of oh, draw those two parallels. I, I personally think that it's multiple decades. I think, I mean, when you look at, you know, 50s and 60s, that was like probably, you know, going from the end of the war to, uh, you know, the oil crisis in the 70s, closer to like 23 years. And then when I look at, you know, 80s, let's call it like 82, 83 to 2000, like 17 years. So if we started this in 2013 and we're like, what, eight years, nine years into this, uh, depending yeah. on exactly where you, we may only be six years into this, right? It's really hard to judge it, um, you know, when we're in the middle of this. But yeah, I think that's super interesting. Yeah. So you described that really, really well. David described it really well. Also, I definitely have to give it a read. I always find things that are very prophetic like that when they, you know, make a prediction and it seems to be true that that's super interesting. Um, definitely got it right with 2008. Um, the interesting thing about the pandemic, though, is like, I feel like moreover, it's people have more of a disrespect for money than they've ever had. People have a distrust mm. for governments, for media, for the financial system. I think that's probably the number one thing that's come out of the pandemic is people, you know, I've been hearing cash is trash for a very long time. Like I was watching a video on YouTube and I'll, I'll uh, link it up to you. It was interviewing people, whether it was like financial people like Peter Lynch or just like everyday investors on what they thought about the markets in the year 1994, which is the year that I was actually born. And um, super interesting that people were saying cash is trash, fiat is worthless, devaluing currencies. So it's just funny, like the themes are the same, like, you know, regardless of the decade. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I definitely find that very interesting. And also uh, a quote, um, you've heard the quote, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men. and weak men create hard times. So when you were describing the book, I just instantly thought about that quote. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So right now we're a bunch of weak, we're, we're, the society is weak, right? Because things have been easy for too long. So now we're, yeah, we're going into hard times with a bunch of weak men essentially is where that, where we are in that quote right now. Yeah. It, it, it's <laughs> the funny. Other, the other one I that, uh, sorry, go on. In certain ways, it's hard times, but in other ways, it's super good times. I mean, when you look at markets and when you look at a lot of other things, I mean, everyone's, you know, out here, you know, it's like, you know, coronavirus is over, like the, re the restrictions are uh, sort of loosening and everyone's enjoying their summertime and money's easy and stock markets are at record highs. It just wouldn't be what you would expect during a pandemic. And it makes a lot of sense because right. uh, it kind of 
turn the whole, um, you know, like everyone's at home, everyone's day trading, everyone has all this, you know, excess money, they haven't been traveling, stimulus checks, interest rates are low, they can borrow money to buy stock, uh, to buy real estate. So it's just interesting that, um, you know, financially, you know, 401ks uh, have never been this high. There's the most 401k millionaires ever. So it's just funny that you would have that during a pandemic and everything going on in the world, whether it's, uh, you know, geopolitically or climate change. It's just not what you would expect. Yeah. And just like the, the funny thing, too, what you're saying with like uh, everybody kind of distrusting the government, distrusting the media. I agree with that. And that's kind of the one thing I think is a little bit different from the book is um, or it might, it might not be. It might turn out differently. But basically, they said that, like, through this period, you know, prior to the cataclysmic event is when everybody kind of gets really separated. They stop trusting government. And then through that event, you know, if you look at it as like a war or something like that. Yeah. That's when, that's when everybody starts like trusting the government and listening and, you know, coming together and stuff again. So that's, that's kind of why I'm, I'm wondering if that's, if that's going to be the long-term outcome or if this is a little bit of a different, different case. Like, I don't know if, if something at the end of this is kind of, kind of come to a head where everybody does say, okay, you know, we, we, we need to start listening to the government again, or, you know, maybe a few of our leaders just need to change for that to happen or whatever the situation is that, based on the you know the analysis these guys did over the past few centuries in the fourth turning like that's what they're saying is always the outcome and realistically like you know it's the same way that you know guys like you and i can make money all the time in the stock market is is because pe people are so simple right like i mean yeah we get you know we get smarter we evolve we have new toys we have new technology but like our, our fundamental instincts are the same and that's that's kind of the funny thing i think why people say you know if you look at like short-term trading, day trading, stuff like that I do, where everyone just thinks it's gambling and you never know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, like I, I have a 93% win rate right now. Like I know how to do yeah, it. One, it isn't gambling. It's speculating. Speculating. Right. That, that's, that's the biggest thing though, is that, is that, you know, people think that, oh, this is just going to end or the markets are just going to change. It's never really going to change because there's always a new group of people. Like, you know, today there's a new group yeah. of 18 year olds that are just opening their accounts and they're just getting into the markets. Those guys are going to have the same mentality that the 18 year olds did in 1950 when they opened well, their accounts. Human psychology doesn't change whether you were trading rice futures in Japan in the 1600s or you're trading, you know, meme stocks in the year 2021 or whatever you're trading or crypto. It's the same. You know, we have fear and we have greed and it's a pendulum and it swings. And that's exactly what it is. So um, there's definitely, you know, tactics and strategies that you're using that you're capitalizing on. Uh, but just remember that these are strategies that work in a bull market. We're in a secular bull market. Like I said, we're probably halfway through the secular bull market. But um, the playbook, the game plan in a bear market is going to be completely different. So uh, just, uh, you know, have a good feel for... Um, you know, the tide and the waves and, you know, how, uh, you know, the market's moving and everything else. And um, just not to get too complacent, which I know you're not, but uh, I think that's going to be what uh, throws a lot of traders and investors off is when the market does change. Because right now you saw it on the S&P. Can you pop up the S&P up one more time? Yeah, you can pop it up on a, you can take off the, um, the trend lines here. And even just pop it up on a monthly because i just want our viewers to understand what i mean by secular bull and secular bear so just pop it on a monthly chart 
Exactly. Yeah, so just zoom out a little bit more. Yeah. So like, if you can just go to two thousand, I'm not sure if you can stretch that far enough. Yeah, I can go right back to like the seventies. Yeah, and then pop, well, then maybe change it to two month instead of monthly two month. I think that probably. Um, I don't know how to do that quick enough. I'm not as good at this as David is. Okay, it's all good. <laughs> leave it on monthly. Leave it on monthly, but change it to log. Um, if you can go back to the 50s, I'm not sure how far it goes, but the 1950s, you had, uh, you know, you had the baby boom. You had inventions of the microchip and plastics and household products and all these amazing life-changing technologies. And you had uh, demographics and population, and that's usually what leads secular bull markets higher and what drives these bull markets and these moves in the indices. But we had one of the greatest bull markets, if not the greatest bull market ever in the 1950s. And that was, I want to say, around a 17-year bull market. And then in, you'll see in the, 19, you know, the 1960s and 70s, uh, when inflation was out of control and interest rates were you know, 20 plus percent, the market just consolidated for, I want to say, about 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, that's it. That's super interesting too, though, because like again, going back to that book, that's what they were saying is the, you know, through the forties into the sixties, that was when everything boomed, and that's, you know, if you're looking at that same eighty to hundred year cycle, that's where we are right now. So exactly, and there were still be like, a pretty good. Like there was, you know, the oil crisis and Vietnam and rates and inflation and everything else that was mm-hmm. crazy. That was, you know, putting, um, you know, a damper on that bull market, but. If you were using the same game plan that you used in the 1950s and you used it in the 1970s, uh, you literally got blown out. And uh, if you guys know uh, Jerry Sy and the story about his uh, Manhattan fund, uh, that's the perfect example. Uh, Jerry Sy was the uh, Kathy Wood of the 1950s and 1960s. He's the guy that made Fidelity what it is today. And if you can just go back to that chart, because I just kind of want to talk over it. Um, yeah, so he um he like tripled the value of his fund in like six years or seven years, which is just incredible. Um, and then in the late 60s, he decided I'm gonna uh branch off and I'm gonna start my own fund company because it was kind of a dead end for him uh in fidelity. And he raised I can't give you the exact number, but it was several hundred millions of dollars, which was the largest fund offering ever. Like in the 1970s, several hundred millions, that's like billions today. Um, and in his first year, he did extremely well. His investors were extraordinarily happy with the returns. But over the next five years, his fund sunk 90% and he had to close down shop. And it's just literally the perfect example of you have a game plan in the 1950s and 1960s in a secular bull market that worked. But in the 1970s, that game plan was the exact opposite of what you wanted to do. And essentially what it was, was momentum trading which um, I'm not sure if you do any of, but in this environment, a bullish environment, it's extremely profitable. You buy the winners, you sell the losers, and you just consistently reap the rewards. But in the 1970s, that strategy uh, was the worst strategy. But uh, in the 80s, that picked up again. You had like a 2017 to 20-year bull market in equities and then secular bear market in the year 2000. So everything is super, super cyclical. And if you have the playbook and you have the game plan and you can understand cycles, uh, that's one tool in your toolbox that's really going to help you as a trader, as an investor, and just a student of the market. Right now, uh, we popped above the um, 
the previous resistance. Kaylin, do you want to make a box? Um, like uh, uh, support could be uh, 2000, uh, the highs in 2000 and resistance could be like, I guess anywhere, maybe even where we are right now, maybe even higher. I mean, it should be, but. Yeah, so it'd be highs of 2000. Yeah. And then so like kind of right where we're at right now. Yeah, exactly. So we broke above that in, um, we broke above those previous highs to make a new secular bull market in the year 2013, 2014. But then we had to retest that in 2015, 2016. And that's exactly what you do after any breakout. You have to retest. And we retested a couple of times. We retested in uh, fall, um, fall slash winter of 2018. We retested during coronavirus. And those retests make me believe that the support that we have around that 2000, 2008 uh, resistance levels is super, super strong. And depending on whether you measure it in 2013 to 2016, it really doesn't matter. This is the early stages of a secular bull market, just like we had in the year 1980, just like we had in the year, you know, 1948 or 1950, wherever you want to measure it. But this is a very, very powerful move. You want to be invested. We're a bit stretched above our moving averages, but you want to take advantage of um of uh, any periodic weakness i just kind of wanted as a side i just kind of wanted your thoughts on uh so like back to that uh, story you were telling i can't remember what you said the guy's name was it lost all gary his, his money or whatever gary Sai, yeah yeah so yeah. so like looking at stuff like this like if you, if you see us like going into a bear market everybody kind of knows we're in a bear market like like what's what's your just personal opinion on how funds should manage like should because, you know, everybody always wants to say, oh, you know, I'm getting crazy returns every year. If you're going into a bear market, like, like, how would you recommend people go about managing their money? Like, should, should you be more defensive, like, just protect what you have and weather it out? Or should you still be, like, doing a ton of research, trying to find the best stocks in the bear market to make money? Or, like, I'm just curious how you kind of... Let's be honest, Kaylin, nobody knows because bear markets come when people least expect them. Like right now you hear about mm -hmm. in the markets, everyone's expecting a big crash and a big correction. And once you get that five to 10% correction, you know, you're going to look on CNBC or Bloomberg and it's going to be flashing Dow down a thousand points, correction, bear market. And it's going to, it's going to, um, you know, psych everybody out. But if you want to go back to the charts, look at the year 2006 and 2007. Everyone was saying, and you can obviously, you know, um, zoom in on that, yeah. but like it just slowly rolls over. So that's a monthly. So it looks like it was a short period of time, but like that took yeah. like a, a year to roll over and it's just a slow topping pattern. Everyone's waiting for that next leg. I mean, if you were investing in 2007 and you had no... Um, other indicators or history or anything else, you would think, wow, this looks like it's about to break out above the 2000 resistance. And mm -hmm. it just, it, it just shocks you. And people probably thought there was resistance at the 50 and then the 200, and then you break that. And then, you know, everything else, you know, that was going on in the financial system and with, uh, you know, subprime mortgages and everything else. But that's just like an example. And if you go back to 2000, that looks like a little bit of a head and shoulders top and, it always slowly rolls over. Corrections typically happen very, very sharply. Um, but bear markets, they roll over and they, they surprise you. But to answer your question, if you have no other questions on that, um, 
being defensive is always a great strategy. It's always great. Like in our funds, we have a barbell approach, really. We have our names that are capturing on upside and on, you know, all these amazing secular themes, like whether it's NVIDIA, whether it's Amazon and Apple and Microsoft and Facebook and Google, and the list just goes on and on. But then you have your names like, you know, your health cares, which are defensive, but growthy as well. You have your utilities and your REITs and your telcos and your staples and your names that are more stable in price and could, you know, give you some upside in terms of capital appreciation, but it also gives you, you know, good dividends and stability. And when you combine the two and you make a portfolio, you're really making your portfolios out of brick instead of straw. Because you see a lot of funds and, you know, I'm not going to, you know, throw any names here, but they're in super high beta, small cap, speculative, e-liquid, like you get all these things. And then if there is a market correction or a market rotation, that's when you lead yourself, um, down a path of uh, really vulnerability uh, because you, you're really just putting your portfolio at the whims of the market. If the market you know, wants to correct or people want to rotate towards uh, you know, safety and income, um, then that definitely puts you at risk. Um, so definitely the bottom line is diversification. That's really the bottom line of what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. If you didn't, it was just diversify as all I was hearing that whole time. You know, that's interesting. Yeah. That's, a, that's a really good point to bring up though, is that, you know, it's, it's tough to tell when you are in a bear market. I mean, like we can look at the history and see, you know, kind of roughly timeframes when these things happen and when we can sort of expect one. But yeah, until it's until you're basically through it, it's yeah, it's kind of hard to tell. So it's, that's a really good point. So, yeah. Um, do you have anything yeah. else you want to go over? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, if we're done with that, I, I definitely do want to talk a little bit about what's going to happen next week before we look at some other charts. So uh, we got Jackson Hole next week, which is uh, the Fed symposium. Um, this is like all eyes are on this. We're going to be listening to a lot of Fed speak and we're going to be, you know, hearing from Jerome Powell and all the other Fed shares. And I think the real debate is we know that they're not going to be raising interest rates in the near or even intermediate future, probably the next couple of years. Uh, but the thing to watch is going to be tapering, uh, specifically tapering the, uh, the asset purchases. So since last year, um, you know, in the face of the coronavirus pandemic, the Federal Reserve threw everything that it had at the financial, um, at the financial system. They implemented unprecedented quantitative easing, QE, uh, where they would uh, buy longer term fixed income securities to um, um, uh, bid interest rates lower and encourage investment and spending. Um, but the Fed also uh, committed to purchasing $120 billion worth of assets every single month, $80 billion worth of treasuries and $40 billion of mortgage-backed uh, mortgage securities. But now, a year and a half later, the market's rebounding, the labor markets are doing great, um, inflation starting to perk up a little bit. Uh, and although coronavirus is still a big concern, it's time to normalize things because right now we're at emergency level interest rates, emergency level, uh, you know, the Fed's balance sheet has never been higher. Um, so it's really time to normalize monetary, um, you know, everything monetary. So um, I think we have to keep our ears to the ground right now. Watch what the Fed's going to do. Um, I don't think they're going to strike a really hawkish tone but they may, you really never know. They're definitely going to talk about tapering, um, which could, you know, be a reason for the market to pull back or consolidate. And then we have the Fed meeting in September, 
And they're definitely going to be talking about that or announcing something, uh, what they're going to be doing with the Fed tapering. Um, so definitely watch that. And that's going to have effect on the yield. So if you can just pop up the U.S. 10-year yield. Go to the daily. Yeah, go to the daily or the weekly. And obviously, we're in a secular downtrend for yields. That's a given. Uh, but like I said earlier in the show, man, we're smack between that, you know, one, 1. 1.5 level. We're going to get that death cross imminently, um, which is never mm. a great sign, but we'll have to see, you know, how that sort of plays out. I think the market's happy with where we're at, but if you start to see the Fed aggressively taper and reduce their bond purchases naturally, bond prices and bond yields are inversely correlated. So if they uh, reduce um, uh, their bond purchases or even start to sell bonds maybe later next year, then naturally you would expect yields to start ticking up. Um, so it's really, in my opinion, it's kind of in no man's land right now, but I'd love to know what you think. I mean, to me, it still looks like it's coming down. Like I haven't, I haven't seen it. You know, I know we, we kind of, loosely joked about it like a few weeks back i said it's going to come down to 50 if i'm looking at nothing but the chart but uh yeah i mean like like we'll put it this way like with what you're saying with it's a no man's land like if 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 i was looking at this short side like i don't see an entry here um but if i if i was already in i wouldn't be covering let's put it that way okay so it kind of goes back to what you're saying like if there is something cataclysmic or whatever that could you know definitely bring yields lower like if there's a new coronavirus variant and you know everything goes back into lockdown or you know the economic growth numbers are just really really shitty going into the fall then you know Mm -hmm. maybe we start to see you know yields go down and people really strike a defensive tone uh but it 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 just seems like the you know support around you know one percent is going to be very very strong i mean if not, uh, you know, it would, it, would, it would be interesting to see how the markets react to that. But the resistance at like 2%, like there's no way that we're going through 2%. So I feel like, you know, right. for the markets, I, I think the market's really comfortable with that. And as an investor, I'm really comfortable with that because, you know, as an investor, you had to get worried in March with yields, you know, the, uh, the slope of the yields were going up, you know, just so fast. Um, but right now, as an investor, this gives me a lot of comfort. Yeah, one and two percent really, really solid. If you just look at how many support and resistance tests we've had off of it here, like short term, it's one forty looks like short term. That's kind of the level I'd be watching just to look for kind of a true reversal. Just because that's that's basically, you know, we if you look back, we had this big day here, that's kind of where it where it broke through, had to have a significant day. And then we yeah. broke down and then we tested it and stayed down, tested it again, staying down. So 140 is kind of more short term, but yeah, I'd agree with you. One and two are kind of the major levels that I'd be watching. Yeah. The other thing that's giving me a lot of comfort right now is the relative performance from the large cap indices, which is really what you want to see leading the market. And then the SPACs and the IPOs and all of the stuff that was just literally thrown at the markets that people were buying in in December and January. Uh, This stuff has really fallen by the wayside. So this is a Renaissance IPO index. And, you know, you don't even have to superimpose a graph on the S&P to know that this has like lagged the S&P 500 tremendously uh, year to date. Um, so this is the IPO index. And then you also uh, above that have the SPAC index, which has been, you know, a very poor performer. I think there were like seven new SPACs last week and like six of them are underwater. Um, so it it just shows like, 
people want to stay with quality right now. And, um, you know, a lot of these names, they just have like a lot of paper out there, a lot of, uh, a lot of stock and um, a lot more sellers than buyers. I'm not sure if it's, you know, lockup expirations or whatever, but, uh, to me, like this is not a good looking chart. Yeah. I, I just haven't seen a lot of good IPO companies lately to be like, I don't know if you've seen any, but there's just like all the IPOs I've seen, there's just, there's been nothing that's been like a really like, Oh, this is a great company. I can't wait till the IPO, you know, like I'm just, there's nothing that I'm too thrilled about. Yeah. Well, it's pretty significant over the course of a year for sure. But you know, how many IPOs have there been in the last year? There's been thousands, I'm sure, yeah. you know, including the SPACs and the reverse takeovers and Robinhood and Coinbase and everything else. And if, you know, you're only finding one or two, uh, it's really trying to find a needle in the haystack. So. Yeah. Even like Robinhood and Coinbase though, like I don't, I don't think anybody was really excited about those as an investment. I think they were more excited about them as like a, as a trade. I mean, I don't think a lot of people that are trading these companies know the difference between a trade and an investment. True. When you think yeah. about how many people are, 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 are hodling, hodling to me is or whatever, right? And it's just like the biggest long-standing joke, right? Yeah, now. yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> I have another yeah. chart for you, man. All right, what's so, that? Um, obviously, you know, there's been a... Um, an issue uh, between uh, Kathy Wood of ARC and Michael Burry. Michael Burry bought, I don't even know how many puts, but he put out a big bet, another big short um, on Kathy Wood's fund. And so it's ARC K. Uh, he's short, again, I'm not sure how many contracts, but it's a significant number. And uh, this is interesting because if you pop it on a weekly, I think it's sitting on the 50 week. So it's a lot more too. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting to see what the direction of this is going to be like, is it going to, um, is this going to be a, a Jerry size situation or is this thing just going to rip it and start hitting new highs as the, uh, we kick off the next leg of the secular bull. Yeah. What do you think? Um, oh, it's kind of a weird spot right now. It changes the line chart. I like the line chart better. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's on the weekly. It's broken below. It broke so, below the yeah the, the fifty week. Yeah. Well, because this right here, this is where we took off from, right? You get that double bounce, so that's that's your line right there. That's your that's your direction. Hit it again. We're below it right now. So yeah, that uh, to me, that's a short personally. Well, all the names in Arc are super high beta. So like the number one stock that she holds is Tesla, and we don't need to look at the Tesla chart because. Uh, we've looked at that a bunch of times and everyone knows Tesla, but if you, you know, you look at some of the other names, um, for example, uh, Teladoc Health is a big one that she has. What's that, uh, what's the ticker for that one, you know? Uh, just write Teladoc, T-E-L-A, and it'll, it'll pop up. Oh, uh, this one. Yeah, yeah so this was one that I, I, I noticed was a weakening chart, uh, and this is one of her biggest positions. So this one... Kind of looks like it's poised to make some new lows here. Yeah. What is this company? I've never heard of them. Yeah, so it's like an online healthcare company, like a digital healthcare company, um, um, which which did very well in the face of the pandemic, right? Yeah. Wow. It blew up, eh? From. Yeah. Wow. And then, if you want to pop up another one, uh, she's very big in um, uh, gene editing stocks, so maybe CRISPR. But this one's been interesting. Like, like, like this is a company that I, I think is very intriguing. Um, 
but it's it's interesting that you see all these high beta names are consolidating. Like that definitely tells you something. Yeah, the charts all look similar. Like this one, the last one we just looked at, like they're doing the same kind of thing. Yeah, and the same thing with Coinbase and yeah. and all the other SPACs and everything else. Like there's definitely uh, some cracks and some areas of weakness. And anyways, I think this is a good segment to ask you, Galen. How have the small caps been doing the last couple of weeks since we last spoke? This is the first time I've seen them significantly slow down in the past year and a half. So like it pretty much just like dropped off. Like usually when I do my scanners and stuff, I do them every day. I get like average maybe 20 to 30. Well, I shouldn't say average. Over the past year and a half, I've been getting 20 to 30 a day. The past week, I don't think I've seen over like five or six. And like my, I got showed my scan here on before, but basically it's like, you know, I'm looking for volume. I'm looking for dollar volume traded. Um, so basically stuff that's, you know, stuff that people are paying attention to in, in short form. And yeah, no, it's, it's slowing down like crazy. Everything's still trading the same, like stocks are still, you know, they're still going up high enough to where I want to short them. They're still falling as far as I want them to fall. Um, but they're not, I'm not seeing any of those like big, like squeezing, you know, the ones that just run over people. Like I'm not seeing stocks that are just, you know, blowing through levels and ripping people's faces off anymore. Um, so I'm kind of curious to see like what at what like what the reasoning is for that or how that's gonna kind of play into the broader market because it's just like 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 we've always said you know those are the kind of guys that are that are just trying to throw their money in and make you know make 100% returns in in 10 minutes kind of thing like those are that's where all that money's coming from so if that's kind of dying off you know you look at like if you look at AMC again you look at the meme stocks and you know all the the Bitcoin like Bitcoin's bounced now but it was selling off for quite a while. I mean, a lot of those guys are in that kind of world and they're in those kind of stocks. So maybe it's a function of those all coming down now. They're kind of getting a little bit spooked and they're not, yeah. you know, all these things are going to, you know, produce those kind of returns. It's, so it's just kind of interesting because that's always, that's always kind of like an insight. Like I like to think anyways, that it's like an insight into like the new excited investor, I guess you could say. It's kind of like so, the way that I like it. I think that. Um, the number one thing, whether it's Bitcoin or speculative assets, just anything where there's a lot of supply. Like, I don't want to uh, just talk about Bitcoin. I want to talk about crypto. And like, there's just been so much supply and new paper and new coins. Like, let's compare the SPAC and IPO sector to the crypto. So, you know, every single week, there's like 10 new SPACs and RTOs and IPOs and everything else, right? And in crypto, there's always a new airdrop. There's new coins coming out. There's a forking. There's people are mining. So like both spaces are flooding the markets with new stock and new paper and new coins. And like, that's never a good thing. But mm -hmm. then when you look at a company like Apple or Amazon or Facebook or just like any other solid large cap company that's um, generating absurd amount of cash flows they're not issuing more stock they're buying stock back and they're retiring these shares so like the whole notion of bitcoin is scarcity well is that true scarcity like there are 21 million coins but how many times has bitcoin forked and how many new coins are there going to be out there i mean it wasn't so long ago that we were talking about shiba inu coin and we were talking about safe moon and all these other coins that have literally just fallen into irrelevance at this point so would i rather be in an asset that is scarce and that there's going to be less of a year from now or in an asset class where there's going to be more of so yeah. it's a pretty obvious choice for me 
And I wish David was on the show. Uh, we can talk about this next time, uh, the M2 money supply growth. Pop this one up on TradingView. Um, I think you just have to write M2. Yeah, so yeah, that's literally it. And uh, I'm not sure if that's popping up there. I can't really see it, it's pretty faint. But anyways, do you see how like during the pandemic, during mm -hmm. the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, you, you really wanna pop it up on log because it'll, it'll show the rate of change. But like the, the, the rate of change for uh, new money in the system, like it's slowed and it's, it's slowed dramatically from what it was doing at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And like, yes, it, it is still going higher, but I feel like a lot of this new money was going into speculative assets. People weren't working, they were getting stimulus checks, they were making more money trading crypto than they were in their day job. So people didn't want to work anymore. Yeah, There were labor shortages. But as the money supply slows down, uh, naturally, uh, we would see a, um, um, we would see everything kind of slow down. You know, what's kind of funny. I almost feel like this was just like a, a snapshot, like the whole markets through 2020 was just kind of like a snapshot of a mass amount of new investors. Cause like, even I was guilty to that when I first started, I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be easy. I'm going to make so much money. You know, I'm going to be able to quit my job, pay my house off all this stuff in like a year. Right. Like, you know, everybody thinks like that when you first start. Right. Like, and I saw, I just saw so much of that in this past year. I think that that's, that's really just a snapshot of what we're seeing here is like almost a, like a representation of the charts of like the new investors mentality. You know, we had like, this, we had this big spike and everybody made a bunch of money and then they lost all that money. And now we've come back down and then things just die right off. And everybody's That's just- That's the easiest way to lose money is to go into a trade with the mentality that this trade is going to be life changing and you're going to make, you know, several times your money over. It's like you're going to the casino and you play poker and you're a really good poker player but you go in with the mentality that I'm going to go take everybody's money and I'm just going to, you know, throw caution to the wind. And, you know, that's when you're going to be playing super loose and, you know, someone's going to call you on your bluff and you're just going to get blown out. Yeah. Versus if you go in with the mentality that, okay, I'm going to make 10% this year. I'm going to make, I'm going to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to try to hit some singles and doubles. If yeah. I see a good pitch, maybe I'll swing for the fences, but I'm just going to try to get on base. Yeah. And yeah, so, so whether you're using the poker or the baseball analogy, it's the same thing mm -hmm. because the, the, the stock market is psychology, it's statistics, a lot of common sense, uh, you know, definitely Peter Lynch um, uh, definitely stuck that in my head. But um, at the end of the day, you want to manage your bankroll very, very well. You want to diversify and you want to take advantage of opportunities. So there's a lot of new investors, uh, you know, a lot of people tell you about their winners. They don't tell you about their losers. So you'll hear about, you know, we had a lot of people on our page giving us shit for Dogecoin. Uh, you don't hear a lot, any chatter from them anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, like I, I, I send, I send all three of you guys, my trades every single day, winners and losers. And I mean, yeah. you know, how many, how many times really think about it? We're always honest and we're forthcoming and, you know, like everyone has a loser. Um, and when you do, um, when you do take a loss, you know, you got to uh, own up to it and you got to learn from it. Yeah. And like, you know, how often do I send you a chart where it's like, oh yeah, I, like I do my trade, I made, you know, six, 7% and then, you know, it falls another 10 or 15 and I'm like, ah, you know, I got okay. stopped out. Like, yeah. How many times has that happened? But by the same token, I mean, that, that might be one out of 15 trades. So if I was trying to do that every time, if I was trying to hold on and 
swing for the fences, then I would lose so much more money because I'd be losing and losing and losing. And then sure, I'd have one big home run, but that wouldn't even offset the losses, right? That's the thing is like, you just, you gotta, you just stick to, stick to what you know and stick to the predictable move and get in and get out. I know David said it once, you know, on the show, I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, you know, oh, well people, uh, they're like, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell it. I'm gonna buy it at 40 and sell it when it gets to 50. And then it gets to 50 and they're like, oh, well, okay, I'll sell it when it gets to 55. And then it gets to 55 and they're like, well, maybe let's just hold on until it gets to 60. And the next thing you know, you're selling it for a loss, right? Yeah, that's that 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 happens to everyone, and that that, that happens too many times. And um, it's funny once you learn that lesson, and then you sell at fifty five, or you sell at forty, or whatever price, and then the thing ends up becoming the next Amazon, and it's like before you know it, it's a three thousand dollars stock. So <laughs> it's really really funny because you want to have these disciplines for sure, uh, but you also like if it's a trade, that's one thing. But if yeah. it's a long term hold and you have a profit or you have a loss or like you just got to stick with it. Right. So, uh, definitely differentiate, uh, your trades and your holds, but for you as a trader, when you define your upside, um, and you define your downside, like with stops, I think that's fantastic. I think that's great. Um, I think people do need to identify their trades and their long-term holds and not everyone has to trade because I know you're very good at what you do, but most people don't have a lot of success doing that. And like, again, you know, I've said this a million times, it's taken me three and a half years to be able to make money. So it's not like, it hasn't been an easy road. It's not like I just opened the computer and I was good. I mean, this cost me tens of thousands of dollars in losses and training programs and education to get to where I am now that I can make money consistently. So, so it's, not it's, only do you have a natural you've also put in the work. Yeah. Like it's, it's taken me a ton of time. I put, you know, I put minimum probably on the low end 20 hours a week still. And when I was really struggling, I was doing like 30, 40 hours a week on top of working 50 hours a week in my full-time job. So like a, nor a normal day for me, like now that I'm a good trader, a normal day for me, including my full-time job is 16 hour a day. Like that's a normal work day for me at 16 hours. That's super, super impressive, man. Yeah. And you know, people are just like, oh yeah, it's gambling. It's this and that. And I'm just sitting here like, you know, whatever I'm, 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 I'm making money. I put in the work, but that's what it takes. It takes it takes work and it takes consistency and it's hard to learn. And it's, it's a, it's a huge psychological battle. So it takes a long time to, to get over that and be able to ignore all the hype and the excitement you see on Twitter and just stick to stick to the process and, and uh, just do your thing. Well, there, there are always going to be naysayers out there. When I got very, very bullish on the financial markets, I want to say that was probably 2015. And uh, you know, we had this, big uh, China driven correction in August of 2020. We had the Dow had like its first down thousand point day. And I just remember the lead up to it. It was like Wednesday down 400 points, Thursday down 600 points, Friday down 800 points. And you just had that feeling all weekend, this gross feeling. Monday morning hits down a thousand points, circuit breakers, whatever. And I just super, super bullish, just bought all the names that I, that I just wanted to buy. Market chopped around for a few months. We had another double dip correction in 2016 and just naysayers everywhere. Yeah. You know, you literally hear everything in the book um, yeah. and why it's going to be the next, like you definitely heard it last March. You know, people were comparing it to 1929. Uh, how many times did you hear that last year? Oh yeah. Yeah. Everybody said it was going to go lower and, you know, it was going to go yeah. fall more and we had it at the bottom and 
So it's, it's, it's what I've said a thousand times on the show, be contrarian, zig when others zag. And um, I'm still bullish. I'm not wavering. Uh, while I acknowledge that there could be some volatility uh, heading into the worst stretch of the year, which is August to September, I acknowledge that, you know, next to, you know, every peak is a valley. And the best uh, part of the year is October to April. That's when you get the bulk of your returns. So definitely, regardless of how the next couple of weeks shake out with, you know, more, um, I guess, um, insight on coronavirus and the Fed and, and, you know, GDP and everything else that you want to be invested in this secular bull market. You want to be invested come October, November, December, you get a little Santa Claus rally, the January effect, you know, January is one of the best months of the year. You definitely want to be um, there for that. Uh, April is the best month of the year. So definitely from that October to April stretch, you want to be there. Um, I could see the markets being a lot higher. Um, do you have any end of year predictions? No, I mean, I think you pretty much just covered everything that I would have said. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally on board with you for that. And I think I just kind of, before we wrap up, I just kind of wanted to touch that, you know, you and I, we both have completely different trading styles, investing styles, but you know, the bottom line is when you say we're a contrarian, the reason that we're confident in sticking to those predictions, despite literally the news and all our friends and family and everyone telling us that we're wrong is because we've put in the work and we, because we've studied and we've made mistakes but inexpensive mistakes that allowed us to stay in the game and not blow right out. So that's the biggest thing when it comes down to it is it's just, you got to put in the work and you got to, you got to educate yourself and then you'll be confident when, you know, you got 20 people in a room saying you're an idiot. Don't buy that. Don't short that. Like it's going to go the other way. You can say, no, like I, I know what it's going to do. I'm right. And if I'm wrong, I'll cut it and I'll take a small loss and you take the trade. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I don't know about you, but I come from a family of bulls. So um, <laughs> we're, uh, you know, very, very excited about the markets, especially, uh, you know, where the NASDAQ's going to go. Uh, so, you know, that's good there. But even in my family, they're all fundamentalists. They're CFAs and I'm a CMT. So we have different disciplines also. Um, and it's great because we um, bounce different ideas off of each other. It's different disciplines. Like we can look at a chart or we can look at... Um, you know, they're great with the financial statements and, you know, everything sort of macro. But when you put those two together, that's, um, you know, uh, fantastic. But like even me and you, like me and you look at a chart completely differently. Um, you know, like today, like you threw up that line chart. I don't use line charts very often. So mm -hmm. and you're able to get that break. Um, I started using Heikinashi's recently, uh, which is, uh, you know, a, a new sort of um, um, kind of um, way to look at candlesticks. So, uh in terms of uh, you know discovering trends there, so there's 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 so much to learn, and uh, you know I love being on the show with you because we can you know uh, you know agree we can disagree, but um, it's great when we come towards the same contrarian opinion yeah. with completely different backgrounds, completely different statistics and charts and and um, and everything else. So uh, uh, that's that's great, man. That's when we know we're right. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's enjoy the rest of the year. Um, I think it should be a pretty fruitful one. And I'm, I'm uh, very excited, uh, you know, to uh, kick off this next leg, you know, going into 2022. Sure. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody, for watching. And we'll see you guys next week.